Well, good evening, and thank you very much for that introduction. I am just so pleased uh, to be here. I'm delighted. Um, this is my first trip to Maine, and um, I was attracted by the opportunity to speak to you today because of my desire to visit the state, but most importantly, because I was attracted to Beloved uh, because it is a novel that's very special to the society and because I love to spend time with folks who love the humanities, um, who love literature and art and music and drama. It was a wonderful performance. I don't know where she is, if she's still here. And who are willing to spend their weekend discussing works and how they speak to us in our profession and in our everyday lives. So I'll be very happy when the keynote is over and I can join you <laughs> as a participant and just enjoy this weekend. I mean, it's, it's really dear to my heart, these kinds of moments. I would also like to thank Jerome Bennett and the Maine Humanities Council for inviting me to this special winter weekend devoted to Toni Morrison, particularly um, in light of her death in August. As you know, we all lost a giant in the literary world. <clears throat> Toni Morrison was not only a great American novelist, but she was an extraordinary champion and practitioner of the humanities. She wrote novels, she taught, she edited, she produced first-rate scholarship, she wrote plays, song lyrics, and the libretto for an opera, Margaret Garner, that was based on the same historical incident that became the story of Beloved. Um, the, the many memorials and tributes to Morrison over the last months, and certainly weekend sessions like this one devoted to her work, keep Morrison's legacy alive. And it will be incumbent upon all of us to continue to read and study her works, to question, to discuss, to analyze, to enjoy, in order to be reminded and sometimes to discover for the first time that Morrison was, what Morrison was trying to tell us in her novels, her scholarship, and all of her contributions to the humanities. This weekend, <clears throat> we will focus on what she was trying to convey to us in the writing of Beloved, and what this novel continues to mean to us in the contemporary period. I love the question posed uh, when I discussed this weekend, uh, at first with Jerome, a question while appreciating the artistic, cultural, and historical achievements of Beloved, there was also a question about its continued relevance. What meaning does this work have for us today? As a student of American culture and American literature, I was particularly drawn to that emphasis. As I would say to my students sometimes, if you are walking along the beach and you pick this novel up and you know nothing else about it, what, what does it tell you about the time that it lives in or that it lived in? And so this cultural, even anthropological question is um, very important to me, and I appreciate your uh, contextualizing this evening um, in, in that way, or this weekend in that way. I think understanding the reasons Morrison began writing the novel in 18, uh, 1983 are the first clues to why it is still important to us today. And in this talk this evening, I want to share with you what Morrison says motivated her to write Beloved, in, to begin writing it in 1983, 
and what she saw as the significance and meaning of the text when she looked back on it in 1989. And then I want to begin the discussion of what it still means or can mean for us today. Even as I posit some ideas about that, I hope we will have a very open and fruitful discussion this weekend about the achievement of Beloved and why it is a novel that still speaks to us and why it will continue to speak to future generations. Before I begin that discussion, I'd like to give some historical context of the novel. I'm sure that after having the novel assigned to you last year, that most of you probably know this context. But for the record, I want to just summarize some important facts about the novel that will locate uh, it in literary history and that we can keep in mind as we begin our deep dive into the text this weekend. Beloved is Morrison's uh, fifth novel. And I am, okay. It is, and that's, that's the original dust jacket, so I wanted to um, share that with you. <clears throat> it's her fifth novel. She began writing this novel in 1983 when she left Random House after 18 years as a senior fiction editor. She had written four highly acclaimed novels, beginning with The Bluest Eye in 1970, Sula in 1973, Song of Solomon in 1977, and Tar Baby in 1981. Imagine that. She was a senior, <laughs> senior editor. So you work all day, you write all night, but <clears throat> what her friends say, of course, is that she wrote on the train, she wrote at the stop signs, she wrote, she wrote, she wrote, everywhere. Um, in 1983, Toni Morrison accepted the Apple Schweizer chair at SUNY Albany, where she began most of her writing of Beloved. And having that chair in creative writing there gave her the, the time and the opportunity uh, to, to begin this work. And um, she had also left Random House, so she had more time on her hands. The novel was based on the true story of an enslaved woman named Margaret Garner who had escaped in 1853 from a plantation with her four children. About 10 days later, I know it's 28 days in the book, but about 10 days later, <clears throat> when they were found in Kentucky, um, the Kentucky Marshal and slave catchers in Ohio uh, found Margaret Garner in Ohio. And when they got there, um, there was some resistance from her husband, and Margaret um, just, in, in a fierce fit, it appeared, gathered up her four children and um, proceeded to try to kill them all. Um, her contention was that death was better than slavery. And she had two boys and two girls, just a young baby that um, was just about nine months old. And so she was successful. I always hesitate when I use that term, but she was successful in, in uh, slashing the throat of the oldest girl, the third child. And she killed that child. And she had uh, hit the boys in the back of the head with, um, <clears throat> with the shovel or the machete that she had. And so she was really determined to try to kill them all. And of course, um, the um, marshals were able to break in and stop her from doing that. And they took her away. She was um, put in jail and was awaiting waiting trial. And it's an interesting case because um, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 said <clears throat> that um, slave owners had a right to 
retrieve their property and take it back to the plantation. And abolitionists, so they wanted her tried for stealing property. Abolitionists wanted her tried for murder because there were certain assumptions if you were tried for murder. One, that you were a citizen and you were subject to the laws of the land. And so it's, it's just interesting that that was, um, it was kind of a celebrated case in uh, Ohio at the time because of these two warring factions. <clears throat> and as it turns out, um, she, the fugitive slave law proponents won. And, and so in the real story, um, Margaret Garner goes back to Kentucky and is later, there, there are various stories about what happened to her, but later um, was sold down the river to New Orleans and the the, the boat hit a uh, barge and she died and one of her children fell over. So, But when Marson, um, d during this time, Margaret was interviewed by the Cincinnati Gazette and um, this story appeared if, if, I don't know if you can see that title, Slave Mother Murders Her Child Rather Than Set it, See It Return to Slavery. It was interesting to me that that is the headline for that story, the title for that story, even, even in, in um, but that was the case. And um, so Marson remembered seeing this newspaper clipping in a book that she was the in-house editor for called The Black Book. And The Black Book was a series of newspaper articles and playbills and clippings and photographs. And one of the things that Marson was really so fascinated by. And, um, and so she remembered seeing this story when, um, when she was thinking about this later on. Um, so she had read the story when she was an editor. She'd been moved by Garner's story, not because of the horrific nature of the, not only because of the horrific nature of the killing, but also, she says, because of her response, which, um, you know, there was no um, breaking down, no sorrow, no uh, wailing or uh, any kind of stuttering or hesitancy in her voice, that she was calm and resolute and that she believed in spite of everything that she was trying to do the best for her children, and that's what she told the journalists. She felt it was better than for them to die than to live as she had lived in slavery. The project of the novel for Morrison then became retelling that story, showing the horror of slavery, capturing Margaret's resolve and determination to protect her children, even if it meant killing them, and then, most remarkably, in a way that I consider the most Morrisonian, exploring the ethical dimensions of the act. For Morrison not only gives us, in Beloved, the blow-by-blow blow of the horror of slavery in the novel, which, if you are arguing for, and, and I've done this in my class before, but if you, are, if you are the prosecution and you are arguing um, for um, Margaret Garner, you can talk about this in terms of, you know, how horrible it was. But if you're the defense, you can say, look at how terrible slavery was. That there is, there is some justification for what she's doing here. Uh, so Morrison not only gives us that blow by blow, but she also 
um, has Seth and the community deal with the guilt for having taken her daughter's life. Even with the horrific nature of the crimes against self and dignity and humanity that slavery allowed, in the end, Sethi is not let off the hook. She has to deal with her own guilt by having to face the ghost of the daughter whose life she had taken. As one critic later put it, the hard reality of Margaret Garner's act was that she did the right thing, but she didn't have the right to do it. <clears throat> so when Marza was contemplating the freedom being delineated in, women, in the women's movement in the 1980s and the freedoms that mostly white women in that movement were giving voice to as what they wanted to be free not to do, uh, Marson was reminded of the story of Margaret Garner. Here's what she says regarding the meaning of that novel would have for her, and I would like to posit it as the first reason the novel is, was meaningful to us then. Marson says, Beloved began with a general question and was launched by a newspaper clipping. The general question, remember this was the early 80s, centered on how other than equal rights, access, pay, etc., does the women's movement define the freedom being sought. One principal area of fierce debate was control of one's own body, an argument that is as rife now as it was then. This is what she said in 1983. Many women were convinced that such rights extended to choosing to be a mother, suggesting that not being a mother was not a deficit, and choosing motherlessness for however long could be added to the list of freedoms, that is, that is one could choose to live a life free, free of and from children, bearing no negative or value judgment, um, and no negative value judgment need apply. Here again, Morrison says, the silences of historical accounts and the marginalizing of minority peoples in the debate claimed her attention. From the point of view of the slave women, having children, being called a mother, was a supreme act of freedom, not its opposite. Suppose instead of being required to have children because of gender and status, slave status and profit, one chose to be responsible for them to claim them as one's own, to be, in other words, not a breeder, but a parent. Under US slavery, such a claim extended to infanticide, for whatever reason, noble or crazed, and it did become politically explosive. Assertions, Morrison concludes, of parenthood under conditions peculiar to the logic of institutional enslavement then was criminal. So Marson has, um, Marson's desire then to, that the woman who wants to be a parent was her subtext, wants to have children, was her subtext for Sethi's development around being a free woman. And I just want to read you a passage that um, shows Sethi's jubilation over the freedom she has to choose that. And that is the repositioning of motherhood that Morrison wanted to do in this novel. So Setha is talking to um, Paul D. And she says, I did it. I got us all out without Halle too. 
Up till then, it was the only thing I ever did on my own, decided. And it came off right, like it was supposed to. We was here, each and every one of my babies, and me too. I birthed them, and I got them out, and it wasn't no accident. I did that. I had help, of course, lots of that. But still, it was me doing it, me saying, go on, and now. Me having to look out, me using my own head. But it was more than that. It was kind of selfishness I never knew nothing about before. It felt good, good and right. The second reason that I think this novel, so this, this freedom, rethinking the freedom of motherhood, the freedom to be a mother, the freedom to parent. And that was Morrison's way of really shifting and adding to what she considered the silencing, the silencing of what would have been a slave woman's view. And this, this happened in, in many of the novels and stories that were written in the 1880s that um, was absent from that debate. So she, Morrison wanted to put that context back into it. And she had been so influenced by this article that she remembered seeing when she was editing the Black Book. The second reason that this novel is important to me is because it records that interior life of slaves. And because of the, not just recording it, I mean, you can read slave narratives, you can, and it's, um, it's very matter of fact. Um, they, it, there's not much complexity in the slave narratives. They are told to someone who is recording them for a very particular reason so that they can argue for abolition, all good things. But that kind of layered human complexity of the interior life is what Morrison wanted to do in these novels. The challenge for Morrison in writing a novel that sought to capture what she called the intellect and the ferocity and the willingness to risk everything uh, as Setha was willing, was that it would have to be developed against the backdrop of slavery. She would have to show the brutal nature of the system that would have a mother declare calmly and without hesitation that slavery was a fate worse than death. The terrain of slavery, Morrison says, was formidable and pathless. To invite readers and myself into that repellent landscape of slavery, deeply buried but not forgotten, was to pitch a tent in a cemetery inhabited by highly vocal ghosts. My reluctance, she continued, to enter the period of slavery was disabling. Plus, I believe nobody else would want to dig deeply into the interior lives of slavery except to summon their nobility or victimhood, to be outraged or self-righteously gripped by pity. I was interested in neither. And this, this has always been um, one of the more fascinating things that happens when I teach this novel. Uh, because I do have, we, we often set up a courtroom and the, and the students, um, some students are really resistant to argue uh, against Setha. She, she was a slave. She went through all of this. How can we possibly put her on trial? And Marson does not let her off the hook. I think it's a very important part here in what she's trying to affirm in this text. Morrison did enter the interior life of slavery and beloved, and she shows us all the horrors, not in summary statements, but in personal violations, one by one. The machinery of slavery, 
of iron collars and bits suffered by Hallie and of others, the degradation of slavery, of throwing a young nursing mother down and violently and inhumanly sucking the milk from her breasts, of restricting the healthy sexual development of enslaved men, of humiliating them as sex objects, of burning them to a crisp, men like Sixo who risked everything to try to build a healthy relationship with a 30-mile woman, or recounting the kind of details of a child's life that mothers take for granted, that slavery took away, lamenting, for example, not seeing when the baby teeth came in. That was the one that just took me away when I, when I read that the first time. I said, okay, I get it. You, you didn't hear about that in slave narratives. You didn't hear that lament. The interiority was complicated by not just showing pathos and brutality, but also posing the human ethical dilemma of trying to forget and seek forgiveness, and in so doing, claiming the humanity of the slaves. While Morrison builds a convincing case to make slavery a system worse than death, she does not absolve slavery, uh, Setha, from the act of taking the life of her child. The community does not approve of her act, and they are quiet but intentional in their withdrawal from Setha and Denver and Bluestone Road. But the baby whose throat she cuts come back to haunt and extract revenge. Forgetting the past was the engine, Morrison says, and the characters, except for one, are intent on forgetting. The one exception being the one hungry for a past, desperate for being not just remembered, but um, dealt with, confronted. That character would be the only one in a position to accurately render judgment on her own mother, the dead child, beloved. The presence of the ghost and the ultimate return of the ghost of beloved becomes the driver of the story. The furniture movement, the shaking spells, the noises, the red light, all suggest the haunting of beloved in the house on Bluestone Road. And at every turn, Seth is eager for her to come back so that she can explain. Maybe she don't understand, Denver tells her. Maybe, she said, but if she only come, I could make it clear to her. For a baby to throw a powerful spell, Denver tells us, no more powerful Seth answered than the way I loved her. And when she finally comes back in the flesh, Seth makes her most powerful argument. And you probably remember this um, in the choral poem where everyone claims, you know, I, I, beloved is my daughter, beloved is my sister, I am beloved, that section. And this is, this is the section when Seth speaks. And this is her plea, and, it's just so, and, and that is what I'm trying to explain here to you, is the ethical dimensions of this. One is guilt. You did it, and you are responsible. And here, then, is her request for forgiveness. Beloved, she my daughter, she mine, see, come back to me of her own free will, and I don't have to explain a thing. I don't have time to explain, because it had to be done quick, quick. She had to be safe, and I put her where she would be. But my love was tough, and she back now. I won't never let her go. I'll explain to her, even though I don't have to, why I did it. How, if I hadn't killed her, she would have died, and that is something I could not bear to happen to her. Think about that. Think about the 
irony of the mother says, said, if I hadn't killed her, she would have died, and that is something I could not bear. Seth is owning up to her act and being willing to explain it is in the context of the assumed ethics, human ethics, citizenship ethics of the enslaved. That part of this book to me is remarkable. Her guilt is her testimony of her humanity, her love, her responsibility as a mother. And it is a uh, welcomed achievement for this novel. Also part of what comes out in the ethics, the, the layering of ethics in this text is the ethics of redemption. And of course, as we all know, Beloved does not understand what Seth is trying to tell her, and she comes back to take from and torture her mother. She took the best of everything, the best chair, the biggest piece, the big, biggest ribbon for her hair. She, Seth pleaded for forgiveness, counting, listing again the reasons that Beloved was more important, meant more to her than her own life, but nothing is enough for her. She takes and takes and takes all she can get from her mother, food, work, strength, Paul D., until the community realizes that it's too much. And this is that second ethical moment in the text, the ethics of redemption, when the women in the community, after hearing the stories, finally come to her rescue. It was, and, and this is from the book, it was Ella more than anyone who convinced her that a rescue was in order. She understood Seth's rage in the shed 20 years ago, but not her reaction to it, which Ella thought was prideful and misdirected, and Seth herself too complicated. But whatever Seth had done, Ella didn't like the idea of past errors taking possession of the present. Seth's sin was staggering, but her pride outstripped even that. But she could not countenance the possibility of sin moving on in the house unleashed and sassy. She didn't mind a little communication between two worlds, but this was an invasion. In gathering the women of the community to respond to Beloved's excesses in this way, to perform an exorcism of sorts to get Beloved out of the house, Morrison turns the ethical dilemma of the wrong against Beloved on its head and poses another question about Sethi's personal survivor and how much we should let the past overtake us and stymie our ability to move forward. That, to me, is a surprising triumph of Beloved and why we can come back to this text again and again. It's not just about thick love that protects a child to its death, but it's also about self-love, learning to forgive yourself, and here, the women who gathered at Bluestone Road, Morrison offers redemption and a way forward. And we come to understand and applaud the hopeful ending that follows. You know this scene, I'm sure if you've read it. When the women have left and Beloved disappears in the woods, Paul details Seth at the end of the novel, Seth, me and you, we got more yesterday than anybody. We need some kind of tomorrow. You your best thing, Setha. You are. His holding fingers are holding hers, and she answers, me? Me? Marson gives us this healing, self-affirming response to trauma. The ending of the novel makes clear that we cannot forever dwell in the past. We have to move on. 
This is a major contribution, I believe, to how we think about our lives after traumatic things happen. Clarity, love, and community are important. Claiming motherhood, exploring interiority, affirming ethics of an enslaved community are those first interior achievements of this text. But there is another that is more symbolic and institutional. Beloved also creates what Morrison calls a site of memory. A year after Morrison wrote Beloved, she says she began to seek more clearly what she had done or what she was trying to do by writing the novel. In an interview with World Magazine, the interviewer asked her why she wrote Beloved. She says, I finally began to understand what I was trying to do in the novel. In her acceptance speech for the Melcher Award, she says she had begun then to understand what the book was substituting for. When the interviewer asked her why she wrote Beloved, this is what she had to say. There is no place you or I can go to think about or not think about to summon the presences of or recollect the absences of slaves. Nothing that reminds us of the ones who made the journey and of those who did not make it. There's no suitable memorial or plaque or wreath or wall or park or skyscraper lobby. There's no 300-foot tower. There's no small bench by the road. There's not even a tree scored an initial that I can visit or you can visit in Charleston or Savannah or New York or Providence or better still on the banks of Mississippi. And because of such a place does not exist that I know of, the book had to. <clears throat> Since 1989, of course, there have been many museums dedicated to providing a place for us to remember. But in 1989, when she answered that question, Morrison saw the book itself as providing that site, preserving the domestic remembered places of slavery and trying to communicate what it meant to women and men and children who experienced this horror on a personal level. Every time a reader picks up the novel, he or she can experience that memory, that time in place <clears throat> in history and seek to understand what happened. This historical role of beloved cultural role of Beloved, of providing a site, is what we have also wanted the Toni Morrison Society to be. In fact, our motto is a small bench by the road. And if you know anything about us, we also have launched a memorial outreach project called the Bench by the Road Project. And we've placed 25 benches all over the world to mark such places um, that are unmarked and are part of the history of the African diaspora. The site of memory, a place where we can provide moments of engagement and reflection, education and understanding about this history is much like what you are doing this weekend. And, and it is so in keeping with what we are trying to do and what our, our role and responsibility I think is as American readers of Morrison's work. Finally, the book is important to us because of the enduring literary merit of the text. After not winning the 1987 National Book Award around which there was much controversy, 
Beloved, in 1988 won Robert, the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Book Award, the Frederick Melcher Book Award, the Lyndhurst Foundation Award, the American Book Award, the Ansfield Wolf Book Award for Fiction, and most notably, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. The recognized literary merit of the text is without question. Reviewers praise her, the novel, and her, her and the novel as a work of genuine force, as a profound and shattering story that carries the weight of history. Exquisitely told, one reviewer says. Magical, rich, provocative, said another. Written with force rarely seen in contemporary fiction. The novel is taught in high school AP courses and at nearly every university in the country. At one she visited, uh, they told her it was taught in 23 different courses at the university that semester. That has been the beauty and the reach of this novel. And in 2016, it was voted by book editors as the New York Times as the best, best work of American fiction in the last 25 years. A remarkable statement, I believe, of its enduring literary merit and why it continues to satisfy us as readers and scholars. That was then, and this is now. And I thought about this a lot. And it does seem to me that what, much of what is meaningful about the novel then is also meaningful about the novel now. While Morrison's focus on interiority of the life of slaves in 1983, was focusing on slaves in 1983, the novel has become a model for the kind of questions that we should continue to ask about mass traumas that easily wipe out their meanings on an individual level whether it's the aftermath of hurricanes or brutal immigration practices or social injustices inflicted on masses of people, works like Beloved ask us to deconstruct the, these events, move them past the mass occurrences that can block out the individual impacts of large historical moments and forces us to look at the ways in which trauma is experienced personally and in the ways that it can be overcome. I think often now of summary news stories that I see of how many Mexicans there are at the border or what it meant for Haiti to be destroyed by earthquakes or Bahamians to be turned away or Syrians to be constantly at war. We see the 60 million or more faces on the news, the faces Morrison talks about in works like The Foreigner's Home, but the beloved template shows us how and why we should explore the subtext, the personal stories, the personal human pain of those stories. And surely, like all great texts, it is a novel that we can go to for the beauty of the writing. That is, That was then and it is now. Uh, I'm always so impressed with the mixing of genres in this novel the songs, the poetry, um, the, the language that um, it is just so spot on and um, clear and precise. Literary merit is also instructive and generative. The papers we will hear tomorrow are evidence of that continuing literary merit and the generative scholarship that books continue, the book continues to produce. 
Cedric Bryant will look at issues of love and literacy in the novels and the intertextual character development that Beloved has with other novels. Aaron Salius will explore the impact of religion and spirituality in the novel and how the characters experience memory in that context. And from Sheldon George, we will hear more about how Morrison constructs the interior life of her characters, how she fills in the gaps. And in the end, we will perhaps in our discussion of reparations discuss the ethical implications of slavery and the obligations we have to do the right thing in light of this history. Beloved will hopefully provide some guidance on how we process that question. As you can see, Beloved is a text that reaches us on many levels. It is a feminist text that affirms motherhood and having children and parenting them as an option. It is a work that explores the, the interiority and in, of lives of slaves and in so doing, giving the enslaved back their agency and their humanity. They did not allow slavery to stop them from being ethical beings with their own unmitigated code of right and wrong. It is a text that even under the horrible circumstances affirms forgiveness and embraces the future. And finally, it is a generative text, continuing to provide for us a site, a symbol of remembrance, continuing to be a rich source of literary analysis and intertextual understanding for scholars, teachers, and readers. For all of these reasons, Beloved is, contrary to the story it tells, is truly a novel to pass on.